Hey, everybody. Quick note before we start this episode. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you've noticed that uh, Texas was kind of frozen solid for, uh, what, four or five straight days there, Scott? Thereabouts, yes. And uh, both of your intrepid hosts were caught in that awful disaster. And uh, yeah, we were without power, internet, warmth. (laughs) Uh, We were without a lot of things uh, for this last week. Love was taken away from us this week. It was a it was a brutal as hope a little bit of bottom. hope. Oh yeah, yeah, all the hope, all the hope gone. Yes, it was gone. But a- any trust that we might have in our state governance, uh, what, whatever little bit of trust that would have been there, is gone that uh, as well. Yes, let's get a little a quick little fuck you to Governor Abbott and uh, Senator Ted Cruz in here. They suck, very unhelpful. But we are going to make it up to you this week, are we not, sir? We we are very anal's probably too strong of a word, but it's not all that far off. I'm I'm very anal about being on time with these episodes and yes. being consistent for for you guys. And on top of almost freezing to death in my home, I was also like kicking myself for missing an episode. So we decided, you know, if we're gonna force you guys to not hear the wondrous sounds and intonations of our voices for a whole week, that we would uh, what quintuple up on it i think that we do a full-on fucking blowout that's what's going on right now you're getting king cast a palooza this week we're dropping five episodes an episode every day four on the main feed one on the patreon it's going to be absolutely bananas and we hope this smooths things over with everyone Yep, so there's a whole bunch of episodes coming your way this week make sure to stick around and listen to the outro to this episode we will go into great detail on every episode you're getting this week Very good. Let's do the ad read, Eric, for our glorious overlords at Fangoria.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully created content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical copy, a collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% on your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Sir! Advise see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today, we are joined by a talented writer, producer, and a legit psychologist on top of all that. She is an Oscar-nominated writer of The Big Sick, and more importantly, the Austin Film Critics Association winner for Best Original Screenplay. You're welcome, Emily. Uh, (laughs) That was you. Thank you. (laughs) It was. She is also the co-creator of The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail and co-host of the popular podcast, The Indoor Kids and Staying In with Emily and Kumail. There's lots of indoor stuff yeah we did that on purpose that's a little easter egg (laughs) right so uh ladies and gentlemen please welcome emily v gordon to the king cast stage hello hello thank you thank you for having me 
Thank yes, you so much. Yes, of course. We are so excited to talk to you, especially about this property. Oof, absolutely. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. We're trying to avoid most of the COVID talk during these chit-chat sections uh, of the show because uh, we've gathered that people are tired of hearing about the mess we're all in. But I will say you've been keeping extremely busy as this has been going on, haven't you? Uh, I, I like to work. And what I realize is that when I don't have work, uh, I, I lose all sense of who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a blessing to get to work from home during God, this. God, ain't yeah. that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I have two days with nothing going on, I start climbing the walls and like questioning reality itself. It's, it's, you've really got to keep your mind occupied these days. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't know what's healthier, that or, or what I do is if I have two free days, I just go great and I just sit in front of my fucking Xbox and, and, and play like 12 hours of video games. That, that, that me, seems a little. That's yeah. what weekends are for. I can do that on weekends, but I kind of like, I need, it's my, our schedules have kind of kept me kind of going. So like I need to be busy during the work week so that on the weekends I can do absolutely nothing and feel okay. Um, but like yesterday, I'm waiting on like stuff to come back to me right now. And yesterday I was like, I don't know what, what I'm, what I'm going to do. I don't know what's happening. Uh, and, uh, not a great day, not a great day for anybody in our house. I'll say. <laughs> Well, I will also say that your your podcast, uh, Staying In, uh, was such a perfectly timed release because you, you uh, if people haven't listened to it, they, they should. But it was, you know, essentially in the early days of the lockdown where you and Kumail just kind of were. It's like this combination of like, we're all in this together spirit with like a therapy session of like what it's like to be going through, you know, all this and and how the world suddenly changed overnight for so many people. And it was definitely uh, cathartic to listen to, you know, also while I was stuck at home. Well, thank you for saying that. We weren't really sure what the show was going to be at first, I think. But I I do, you know, I have a, uh, a medical condition that I kind of got diagnosed with very suddenly. Um, see the big sick, if you, I, so I don't have to go into it. Please yeah, just watch it. It's fun. Uh, More info. And I do think there's a thing about kind of waking up and and realizing like, oh, everything's different now that physically with my health, everything's different now that I think I have had experience with that anybody who's got, you know, gets suddenly gets diagnosed with something has experience with that I felt like the world was kind of experiencing at the beginning of lockdown. So I think part of us was like wanting to normalize that feeling and kind of couch it in like, it's going to be okay. But yeah, this is really scary. It turns out that like your body can betray you at any point in time. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to where like, welcome to the world. This is this is what happens. Uh, and so I, I appreciate you saying that it was really fun. And also really, it was kind of a, a draining podcast to make. So and also, I'm still going through all this shit, too. So after a while, it was like, I don't know how to advise people. Uh, how to handle stuff because I'm not quite sure how to handle it some days. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, that makes you the perfect person though. I mean, that's, it's kind of like uh, the guy that you want to be King or the guy you want to be president is the one who doesn't want it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know, it's, yeah. it seemed the person who says they have all the answers is, is uh, probably the last person you want to listen to uh, at, at any given time. So yeah. And after a while, there's only so many times you can be like, yeah, I don't know, man, I'm going through it too. Like you can't <laughs> what about you just say that on a loop for an hour and a half. So um, yeah, we, we ended it at a certain point to kind of uh, when it seemed like things were kind of coming back, but it's not like things have changed that much. Right. And now you're, you're working on this comic adaptation of ball and chain, 
That is correct. From, uh, Scott Lobdell. Am I, am I saying his name correctly? I believe so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I thought you might've been in touch with him by now. Um, um, interestingly, yes and no, not at, at all officially, but, uh, unofficially. Yes, I have been in contact oh, with him. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> this, this sounds so mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> is he like, uh, you know, the hell Holbrook voting here. All the president. Yeah. <laughs> is well, he reachable? Yeah. Is he not? We don't know. We may <laughs> well, never they, know. The rights were purchased, not through me. You know, like it's like one of those, right. like, I also have a thing. I've done a couple of adaptations and I I kind of need that distance a little bit so I can create my own version of what they've done. Cause I'm kind of at that point making a new thing. And I kind of become concerned if I talk to the original author, then I'll be like, oh, or I could go back to exactly what you did because what you did was perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think I have to have a little bit of separation of church and state. I ran into the author of a book I adapted in, a, in like a coffee shop and I fully was just weird and kind of ran away from her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I took your children. I'm so sorry. I took your children and I'm raising them now. I'm sorry. And so I just left. So I think that's a little bit on my end, uh, needing that distance for sure. And this is a uh, this is a Netflix thing. It's got Emily Blunt and The Rock in it. That's um, correct. I remember uh, us reporting this news when it when it went out. But I had I, we were just talking before the show, and I, I had forgotten that The Rock was actually involved in this project. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, He's a good yeah, guy. great guy. They're both amazing. Um, have given me a hard time from the beginning, like in the best way. Like immediately start like giving you shit, like <laughs> like kind of teasing you. And I was like, oh, good, I'm comfortable because the, I've, I've been around comedians for like 20 years now. That's how I'm comfortable is with I, people are kind of immediately just like teasing you and not trying to like, uh, that's how you know when you're in good, I think a little bit. So it's it's been, um, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing to kind of work with movie star stars uh, because that it's just a different kind of ball game. Everything's just a little bit of a different ball game. And it's been a, it's been a great experience so far. So are you in touch with them more than you're in touch with the, the guy you're adapting? I yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, they've also, they've been really great about kind of informing their characters. Uh, the last person I think I met in person before lockdown was Emily Blunt. And then it, since then, I've just been like, um, kind of talking to them on Zoom, which is, it, you know, it's just bizarre. It's just, the you whole thing Zoom. is just kind of bizarre. I'm sorry to interrupt. You're doing Zoom meetings with The Rock? <laughs> Because I can't see him in person. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. But what a surreal! Th- Wait, do you have his? Do you have his phone? <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna even. I'm not gonna I, go there. <laughs> I know you're not gonna give it out, but do you, are you in possession of the? I, rock I have the ability to contact Dwayne Johnson anytime that I have spontaneously. I'm like, he's super cool about it, which just doesn't happen very often. But I'm also like always just waiting to find out if I'm like somehow like you're fired from Hollywood entirely. You have to leave town. Like, um, but, and none of that is coming from him. He couldn't be more fun, more like receptive, more easy to work with. But um, I think you because can take he a is, joke. Yeah. A hundred percent can take a joke. It's really great about it. Um, and so, but I think in my head, I'm just like terrified. I'm going to get like kicked out of town. I don't know. Could I triple dog dare you? Absolutely not. Whatever this is, it's no. Sorry. What if it just, well, just hear me out. What if it just says, I've been thinking about it and your character needs to wear elf boots. Okay. Through the whole movie. Okay. Well, (laughs) (laughs) cut to me like texting it. First of all, there's no visuals here. So I, yeah, I just did it. Absolutely. I did it already. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is, but we're not going to get a response. That's my my trouble. I just want to know what the the Rock's response would be to such a bizarre out of like in the middle of the day. <laughs> Absolutely, um, just like. <laughs> what if he was like? What if he's like? Yeah, totally. I was thinking. Yeah. The same well, then thing. I've got some work to do, and I and then you're you know? committed to the to the elf boots. I imagine. And when we're saying elf boots, are we picturing toes up? Yeah. Oh, total. The okay. the, the full bell? curl and bell. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a little bell at the end. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be a bell. Yeah. But it should never jingle. Well, and that bell. might be demeaning to the rock to have these little jingling. Here's, here's what we're actually going to do. Now that I thought about it, empty bell, no little dingling inside the bell. However, we're going to add the dinglings in post. <laughs> okay, but they're real loud. They're like chiming, like like Big Ben chiming, like that loud. <laughs> Well, they are the Rock's uh, jingle bells, so they have to sound like they'd be the Rock jingle bells. I can't. I am so... Okay, so you're not accepting the dare to text the Rock about I, I would say not. Group. I would say not. And I think, again, it could not be more... Like, I think he would be o- very open to it and very receptive to it. I feel like I'm like a very uh, like professional boundaries kind of human, and I think I would feel very uh, weird about doing it. But I think he would receive it well, which is nothing but a compliment to him and an insult to myself. <laughs> That's fine. I have no boundaries. Send me the Rock's number. I'll get to the bottom of this. By midnight tonight, so help me God. <laughs> and it is kind of a weird thing that because of the pandemic, I'm, I probably would not have gotten like any contact information. Maybe I would have, but I would have just met people in person to kind of have meetings about stuff. And there's an interesting kind of intimacy to like, I've seen the inside of many kind of like um, executives' houses and like many like actors' houses. Yeah. And they it's... That's been the kind of interesting thing about all this is like there is like an uh, we're kind of removed, but also like it's a weirdly intimate way to do a lot of things. Yeah, it is weird seeing in other people's houses. I don't Super like weird. that. It feels invasive to, for me to be doing it to somebody else. Yeah, well, we've just left off. Kamal and I both have left off our cameras when we we're like on Zooms where we're supposed to be on camera. We'll mm-hmm. just be like, not today. Yeah, <laughs> it's not happening today. <laughs> I think that's fair. We, Eric and I, have guessed it on shows where it's full Zoom, and it's like, why do you need to see my face for this? I don't like that. Uh, no, I one also liked- end up doing very visual bits um, as I would be doing now, and and that never works when it's like, well, this will be a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your Stephen King origin story. We understand you're you're a big time King nerd, uh, so I'm curious about when he came onto your radar for the first time. I would say I was actually trying to think about this. I have been reading like horror books as long as I can remember. And I felt like now there's like in between books for like, there's like young adult horror. And back then it was like, you were either reading like Christopher Pike and then you, you just went straight from Christopher Pike to, to like it. Like there was no like bridge. Um, And Christopher Pike, I don't, do you guys know Christopher Pike at all? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like wrote like young adult horror, but it was like, oh, high school and like, oh, things have gone wrong and there'll be murders, but it wasn't ever like gruesome um, versus like, you know, full on spider monsters and deadlights and stuff. And like there was no mm-hmm. kind of in between. And I really liked uh, I really liked reading horror. I feel like maybe there's a chance I went from like the Westing game. This oh, is what keeps coming rule. up in my head. Yeah, The Westing Game is one of my favorite books. And I feel like I was asking someone at the library, are there more books like this? And I feel like I was directed to Stephen King from that, um, mm. which is a weird leap. But I, yeah. for some reason, those are always kind of like entwined in my brain. 
Um, and then I definitely watched, I was what, 11? I must have been 11 when the miniseries came out. And so that's probably what got me started reading it. But from there, I was like, I kind of, I loved Night Shift. I love uh, like, Night Shift, I think was maybe my favorite um, of like the short story books. And then which one is The Mist in? Skeleton Crew. Skeleton Crew is kind of, I think The Mist is my all-time favorite, all-time favorite of everything. Um, but I do kind of love, I, I love all of them. So I, I started at a young age. I would say like either kind of a librarian recommending me, I would probably, I'm going to guess Night Shift and the miniseries is kind of how I got into Stephen King. It was was a big novel for me as a kid. It sounds like you were like me. You read it around the, the same time. You were about the same age as the kids. Definitely. In, yeah. In the thing. And yeah, no, I... There's something very weird as an adult reading back and reading it now. Like I can't imagine being 12 years old and reading that book, especially with all the weird sex stuff that happens and all the allegories of, of trauma and abuse and, and dealing with that as you grow older. Um, I, I think that I grasped that as, as a kid uh, that I grasped there was a deeper meaning there, but you know, thinking back on it, like I don't remember thinking like, Oh, this is, crazy extreme like e even yeah. the big you know sex scene in the sewer like yeah. as a kid I, I just took it at face value i didn't go oh this is weird this this doesn't happen <laughs> you know a lot well, in, you're in that age stuff I read. you know so it, yeah. it doesn't seem as jarring i think as if you like came to that at 40 yeah well i do think that like i i took in all of it but i do definitely and i i got i was at a point where i was kind of reading it once a year basically for like through my 20s i would kind of read it once a year just casually and kind of every time i read it i was like oh 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 okay <laughs> uh, like it would like kind of sink in further and further i remember kind of getting from the start that like Beverly's dad wanted to have sex with her. I remember being like, well, clearly that guy, <laughs> that guy just wants to have sex with his daughter, even like the first time reading it. But I definitely, I was really obsessed with, I grew up in a very small town and I was kind of obsessed with the idea that there was like darkness, uh, okay. like under the surface, because to me that meant at least something interesting is going on. Uh, <laughs> at least something is happening. So like, uh, you know, they've got a hell of a band is one of my favorite short stories uh, from Stephen King as well, because I love the idea of like the town that seems perfect, but kind of underneath it, it's, it's uh pure rot and decay. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Totally. That, that's a rolling theme in King stuff. Salem's lot, needful things. Absolutely. You know, that's uh, it, it all examines the, the rot. And in, I mean, you're right. Dairy is the, the tip top of, of that as an example, because dairy is literally born from the arrival of, uh, you know, of this evil creature. It's, it's sitting in the crater of, <laughs> you know, of, of the impact. I, I think in the first Muschietti film, they did a good job of like showing how Pennywise is kind of in a little bit of the adults. It's why like they're wearing like fat suits and things that are just, they just look grotesque and there's just something off about, about all the adults. And, and I think that is a really interesting uh, angle to show uh, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, that is a thing in small towns of like people ignoring ignoring kind of awful shit that's going on and just going back into their houses. And for some reason, it's like almost a cop out to be like, yeah, it's an evil that landed here like centuries ago. Because uh, <laughs> the, yeah. the real truth is people are like that. And there's no uh, like interdimensional space creature that landed here um, <laughs> right. centuries and centuries ago. And I think that kind of fascinated me. 
And I loved anything where kids were the heroes. I always right. kind of uh, was obsessed with anything where kids were the heroes. I'm trying to think if I had kids like that are that were the age I was when I first read this book, which must have been, you know, like 12 ish or something. Mm-hmm. It was yep. after it was after the miniseries, I guess. I'm trying to think if there's another King book I would be less inclined to let them read. Oh, this and, takes the top, this takes the tops, my friends. This is it. <laughs> well, I mean, well, what like my mind is conjuring like, well, what about Gerald's game? What about Rose Matter? What about Library Policeman? But I think I would let them read all that shit before I let them read it. I think that mm, that's a good. I think some of those would end up being a little. I think Gerald's game would be quite boring for a kid to read. I, I think I think yeah. I read that when I was a little bit older because it didn't come out until we were a little bit older, I think. Anyway, but I yeah, I think this one, it's both um, it's simplistic as well as fucked up. Do you know what I mean? It's like not <laughs> right, super right. complicated concepts. Um, you know, you got your basic domestic abuse. You got like you got your incest. You got your sexual violence. Like you've got all these things that are quite stark and simple um, and just really, really well done and fucked up. He really covers his bases with Dare. Oh, so many bases. You know, so the, the racism of it, the misogyny of it, the <sighs> sexual abuse stuff, the the incest stuff, the corrupt police. It's like, you know, he really delivers on the idea of a town that is just fucked from top to bottom. Yeah. Starts out with homophobia. Usually we're like, we well, we're not getting homophobia in there. We'll get it right in the beginning. We'll get that in there. <laughs> Make sure that we've got all this stuff. Yeah, it's and it's. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can say about how how much delight he seems to take in um, the amount of like racial epithets he uses. There's all kinds of stuff you could say about that. But I think it is kind of painting a picture of like a town of evil uh, and that evil will take any it likes Warm. any outlet yeah. it can get. Yeah, totally. It, 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 but if you look at where it's coming from, it's it's never stuttering Bill shouting the N word, you know, at, uh, at Mike That's or right. anything. It's it's always the worst people. And you can maybe hold King to account of using shortcut there, you know, where the bad guys are always the ones kicking dogs or shoving them in refrigerators or, uh. you, you know, or uh, throwing uh, the gay kid off of the bridge. It's like can maybe argue that it's a little easy um, mm-hmm. as shorthand, but it's also, I mean, look, look around the world. It's the year 2021. We still see this shit now, you know, yeah. it's, it's not, it, it, you know, I don't think it's, it's that far fetched. And, and uh, it makes me uncomfortable, obviously, you know, reading, reading a lot of that stuff now, but I think that's the intent. And I don't think the intent is to think that the people saying it are good guys. It's kind of like, you've seen those articles going around like just now discovering that Walter White's not a good character or whatever, a good guy or recently Jack, Jack Torrance might be problematic. It's like, well, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of the whole point. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think too, now what we look for in our, our bad guys is like the tortured past. We look for like what, what made them this way. And that's the thing that Stephen King specifically in this book does not bother to do. These people are evil because they're evil because they've got it inside of them. They're not like it's, we don't need to know like, Oh, Tom Rogan had a really hard time and his dad didn't love him enough. doesn't matter. That's not what we're interested in. Um, in this book specifically, which I think is a route to go. I just think that's kind of out of fashion these days. Like pure evil is out of fashion these days. I think you might even be able to make an argument. And I had never really thought about it from this angle until you just said that, but that, Pennywise as a controlling force like underneath this town is not only like breeding this sort of uh, across the board hatred and and violence, but also sort of 
allowing people to indulge those impulses and get away with it, mm. you know, as sort of like to, to lull them. Cause like when I think about what Pennywise is doing to the town, it's instilling this anger and this extreme hate in everyone, but also they seem to be enjoying life. They're, you know, they're ugly little existences, you know, he's sort yeah. of pulling the, the lazy shades down on their eyes and being like, don't worry, I'll, I'll keep you stocked with, fucking Malamars or whatever the fuck. And I'll, I'll let you keep lying to your son about, you know, whether or not he needs this medication and, and you like, you know, you're not going to have a lot of crime. You really need to investigate. And maybe you indulge those racist impulses you have. Yeah. That's an interesting. I, 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 I like I had, how also people's eyes go blank. Like when he's like, when it's like really strong, people are kind of just not aware of what they're doing. Their eyes are kind of gone. And, and I think yeah. that's, I think that's a really, it's a really fascinating way to think about anger too, of like, whether or not you kind of indulge it versus like try and like get it out of you some other way versus when you kind of let it take you over entirely, you're still responsible for your behavior, but there it's, it's a, it's kind of an interesting way to think about anger. Right. Well, I mean, they definitely show Pennywise here is the devil on the shoulder, right? He's not making anybody do anything. He's just nudging. Right. Yeah. Uh, and just him being around is like kind of tainting things. And, and uh, like Scott said is just kind of, giving them the excuse that they need or mm-hmm. I don't know, making it okay for them to indulge all this stuff. D- to me, it's fascinating, especially in this re- most recent reread, we get a glimpse in the the life of Henry Bowers and his dad and why they hate the Hanlon family so much. And it's all, uh, you know, the consequences of, of their actions are coming back on them. Henry Bowers' dad like had a run in with, with uh, Mike Hanlon's property line thing. Yeah. It was a property line thing. Yeah. And then he like did some racist, <laughs> racist uh, shit of the sheriff at the time stood up for Mike Hanlon. And then suddenly like they, he won like some sort of lawsuit in the, or something. And Henry Bowers' dad lost his car. And, and then suddenly everything in the world that was ever wrong in his life was because of the, the black family mm-hmm. there. And, and, uh, and that's not too far off from, from how shit actually goes down is like some people will have, they'll, they'll let that fester. And and even though they're the reason why they're in the life position they are, and they're letting their anger dictate those decisions, uh, they won't ever see that. They'll only see that it's the fault of, of this other. It's so much easier to find an external reason for your misfortune than to like do any work on yourself or to realize there are like systemic things at play and not like one particular person's fault. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we love a scapegoat. That's everybody. It's just like your anxiety and your anger are always like looking for hooks to hang themselves on. Like right. just put, let's put it somewhere, just put it somewhere. Um, yeah. And this book is a really, really good example of that. I think. Yeah. Here's a question. And it's, it's, it's a very basic question, but I think the answer is always revealing in which of the kids slash adults do you most identify with? That's so interesting that you asked that when I was a kid, it was obviously Beverly because I, you just don't, I was like, oh, a girl. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you win most, by default. <laughs> <laughs> in my most recent reread, I kind of really felt for Eddie for some reason. Mm. I won't even say connected to, but I kind of like, I felt Richie. I was like, I'm kind of Richie if I'm anybody. But I really, really had more empathy for Eddie this reread than I've ever, ever had. And I don't know why that, well, maybe I do know why that is. I'm not sure why that is. I'm working that out. What about you guys? Well, I yeah, if you're going default Bev, <laughs> Bev, because you were a girl, I went default Ben because I was the fat kid. <laughs> I mean, yes. it, I was the fat kid that had that unrequited love. You know, it's like I, I won't say that I was 
super lonely as a kid. Like, but I had, I had a friend group and I, you know, I wasn't really picked on as much as Ben was. Obviously nobody ever carved their initials into my belly. Um, but you know, I, I could relate to Ben instantly just because of like some of the interior dialogue he gives about, you know, wearing always wearing sweaters that are too big because he was trying to hide his gut and you know, all this stuff. It's that's legit. The stuff that goes through your mind when you're a fat kid, you, you dread PE because you're going to be that, that kid, not because you don't enjoy exercise or you don't enjoy playing different sports or whatever, but it's, it's because, you know, when you go to PE, you got to change your clothes in front of people. You got to, be doing sit-ups in front of all the fit kids that can do it easily it's like there's all that stuff is going through through the mind of you know of an overweight kid i hadn't ever really seen anybody talk about it in in almost all the media that i grew up watching you know even movies i love i'm a huge monster squad fan i love it you Mm -hmm. know but that falls into the the same trope that goonies does where the fat kid always has a candy bar in his pocket you know it's like that's not what uh, reality was like for me uh you know i was i was a fat kid that liked to eat but i wasn't you know, sitting there, you know, just eating a gallon of ice cream every every it night. It wasn't your know, main personality like, trait, is that what you're saying? Right, right. So <laughs> having a nuclear meltdown in a basement because you couldn't get the rum raisin out of the fucking walk in <laughs> right. while the, the fratellis are hunting that. you down. Yeah, yes, yeah. Because that's the most important thing is getting that ice cream. Right. That's all you care about because that's yeah. Oh, you know, I was an overweight kid too, and I hadn't thought about. I had so much trauma identifying that way and not wanting to identify that way, even though that was what reality was. I wouldn't even let myself identify with Ben, even though, do you remember when they would weigh you in gym class in front of everybody? Are you kidding me? What are you doing? Why would anyone ever do that? Uh, But yeah, I remember that. I, I definitely remember that. Thankfully, they stopped. Like, I think that I missed the thank God the cutoff for like showering in schools. You know, it's like they, that wasn't a thing when I when I was in middle and, and high school. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I I can't imagine. Like, can you just even thinking about it today? Like, you're gonna send your kids off to a place where they're gonna go get naked in front of teachers and their classmates to to shower. Yep. I, I had just to do like, it. I I absolutely had to do it, and we had to walk through a foot fungus bath as we were getting out. What the fuck? <laughs> But if you got your period, you were allowed to skip the shower. So every girl would just be like, yeah, yeah, it's happening again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I got my period again. I got my 30-day period. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I use that excuse many times. It never worked. Uh, I still can't figure out why. Well, I grew up a fat kid, and and, and I'm a a fat guy. But my personality is such – I have a very strong personality, if our listeners have not already determined this. No, And I have always, my predominant trait, like I think has always been, regardless of how fat or thin I've become over my lifetime and it fluctuates, is that I am a raging smartass and I cannot keep my fucking mouth shut to save my life. And so I identified with Richie, I think, more than any of them, that sort of motor mouth, always talking yourself into and out of trouble on an, you know, as needed or not needed basis. Certainly with like late stage Richie Tozier, where he's dealing with, you know, drug addiction. You know, I've dealt with that. I identify with all of this, you know, and and also with the idea of like there always being some sort of performance element to your life because, you know, after a certain point, people are expecting you to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think more than any of them, I think it's Richie. Mm. Richie or Bev. It's it's one of those two. Hmm. How much of the identifying, though, is what you personally identify with and also 
where you fit within your own friend circle. Cause I think that has a lot to do with it too. Cause I was never the bill uh, of any of my friend circles. I was never the, like the leader, the natural leader of, uh, of the things. But you know, I had, well, you know, I, I had to like, there's a, a, a girl in my apartment complex that reminds me a shit ton of Bev, you know, who we used to just pal around with a little bit of a tomboy, a little bit, you know, just one of the guys kind of, kind of people. Yeah. I don't know. Like, so is there, is that, does that play into any of that with you guys? Is that, or is that just me? I think, well, and here I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial. I think Bill, this, everybody talks about Bill as being this charismatic, natural leader. Mm -hmm. More than we actually see that happening. Mm -hmm. I agree. I very (laughs) much agree. It it kind of, I was like, in this reread, I was like, show me where Bill is any of the things that you guys are talking about. Show me one place. Uh, (laughs) And listen, I'm going to get some Bill hate. I'm sure that's, I, I can take it. I'll handle it. But I kind of, um, and then it got me wondering, like, if his brother had not been killed, would Bill have any of this? Like, he, and and so I guess the only thing, like, the thing that brought him into this and his intensity comes from, like, oh, my little brother was killed. Um, But I have not... I am the person because I'm I'm often with uh, a bunch of like comedians who up until recently weren't always great about kind of getting their lives together or like organizing themselves. So I've usually been the one to be like, okay, today we're going to do this. We're going to go to this movie. I'm getting the tickets. Everybody pay me back. Maybe two people pay me back. And now they're all like getting married and like kind of getting their shit together. And it's been beautiful to witness. But I have been that person for many years of my life. So I think not to say that I'm like this natural charismatic leader, but I have been the bill but then when I think about actual Bill, he kind of doesn't do everything no. that he says he does. You're doing more than Bill. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I agree with Emily, and I think that on, on the Bill front, and also that what you're doing is admirable. It is it is good to bring structure to people's lives if they're friends and you can recognize that they need it. it sounds more like Mike. I think Bill is just more the, and and I get this, this is actually like mirrors like i can't think of like the my friend circle where there was like this is the guy who is the natural you know leader that's going out and george washington of our group or whatever there's a hierarchy that just establishes themselves we talked to will wheaton and will you said that you know that happened on when making stand by me that it was just river phoenix he was the top of the food right. chain oh, and yeah. and that's I would you have look at river phoenix anywhere. and you go well of course <laughs> Yeah. You know, like River Phoenix doesn't have to <laughs> have like gone out and, you know, confronted bullies or, you know, organized, uh, you know, the the uh, hunt for an, an evil clown to, uh, to to be the leader. It's just you look at him and go, well, yeah, that's that's the, the guy that's sure. going to be the top of the totally that thing. Yeah, River- and and uh, I feel like Bill's a little bit that same way. And you're right. He's just kind of a solid good. Right. That's, yeah. you know, he's just a, a, a solid good. That that's pretty much the extent of his, of his characters that. You know, he's a solid good. I think in the um, in the miniseries, they kind of just lean into that. Like, I think they in the Muschietti movie, they they make uh, Bill a little bit more forceful in in uh, the group because of um, the the added uh, uh, thought that maybe Georgie isn't dead and he, his obsession with that mm-hmm. that he, he might still be able to save his brother. So there there is a little bit more to Bill in in the first movie, but. I think you that's know, a bad, in, ter- in the context of the conversation we're having, though, I think that's a bad move on his part. You know, that's an example of Bill just acting f- fucking straight up delusional. You know, yeah. that kid's not alive, Bill. Like, <laughs> like that dude is dead, son. You know, like put all those <laughs> gerbil traps and all this shit you're doing in the garage away. Like, at least with the Jonathan Brandis Bill, like 
I, I I agree with you on the the Jonathan Brandis side of this. I think in the miniseries, he's straight up just, you know, on a on a D and D alignment chart, right? He's just yeah. pure good, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas I think I don't know what I would put Muschietti's bill on, like on the alignment chart. I would have to give that some serious thought. But <laughs> but I think he is like he's a little delusional, and he's lesser of a leader for it because there's sometimes where he's ignoring what you should do in the situation while playing at courage. And it's just sort of accepted that he is the courageous one. And I don't know if it's entirely earned, but you know, I'm yeah. And then you get the, like uh, you get the caveat of like, but they're just kids. So what does he know? Like, it's like, like you get to anything he does, you're kind of like, well, he's a child. So I guess, uh, I guess whatever he does is ultimately fine. Cause he doesn't know what he's doing. He's fully in uh, ordinary people. He is in the movie Ordinary People, <laughs> separated <laughs> from the entire thing. <laughs> well, well I'm, speaking of all that, it is so fucking crazy to me. And once again, this is maybe Emily. You can shine some light using your your uh, uh, what your bachelor's. You have a bachelor's in psychology. Uh, no, I, have a, I have a master's uh, in couples master's. and family. Yeah, couples and family counseling. So maybe and why, did you, why did you assume bachelor's? Ooh. Because I think that's what was on her Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the same school for my bachelor's and my master's. And so I like, yeah, that would make sense. I would only have one school listed. Also did not know that that was listed at all. So great. That's great news. There you go. You can can correct it. Um, What I would like to look at here is as a kid, like it's something I touched on a little bit earlier as a kid reading this stuff and going on this adventure, I was like, yes, of course a 12 year old can, can uh, kill an evil clown. Right. You know, because I'm 12, I can do it. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I can, you know, face, you know, all these grown ups that don't give a shit. And I can, you know, face off with these these bullies that, you know, are intent on on murdering me and my friends. Like all that stuff, like was just par for the course. I read it now. And my my nephew is 13 now. And he's so he's over the age of this kid. I think some of the kids in the book are 11. Mm-hmm. So he's well over this age. And if he was in any sort like if I just heard he was went into the sewer period i'd be like oh he's dead he's he there's no way he can survive <laughs> like i can't even imagine like he's he's like what he weighs like 90 pounds you know like what's he fucking gonna do like he could have a gun on him and he still wouldn't win in this situation and i get like anxious thinking about that that stuff but like yeah. what do you think that is like as a kid you're reading it and it's no big deal but like when we're looking at it now as parents or not parents parents age adults you know looking at it now and going like absolutely no fucking way in hell would would i ever let any kid that you know that i i love in my family you know uh, uh do anything that's in this book i think the book kind of a little bit addresses that which was something like i i was picking up on he uses the word desire constantly in this book and he also talks a lot about like that belief in magic when you're a kid that like, if you believe you can hurt this monster, then you can. And that that's, and it reminded me of um, Ali Sheedy's amazing uh, moment from breakfast club where she was like, yeah, when you get older, your heart dies. And that idea that like you, it works when you're a kid because you believe it's going to work like battery acid, fuck nuts. Like, yeah, you believe it's battery acid. So it is, It, it is kind of a thing that I think is really essential for kids to believe it's not realistic, but it's a it's a lovely kind of thing that keeps you going when you're young. Right. It's this idea that if you have faith in something, if you believe in something, that's enough for it to be real. And I think I think that's something the book addresses. And he does the thing again 
it's so hard to contain any book of his, especially this one, into like a theme. But I, at the end of it, he's like, you know, and desire and who you are when you're a kid and who you are when you're an adult and believing in magic. And you got to rock and roll a little. And they believe that they can fight this monster. And it's their belief that makes the monster real and makes them real. I think that's a cool concept. And also widely uh, incorrect and not true and grow up kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you're fucked. You're fucked. You're fucked from the get go. You gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta get through life off, with, with reality, just like the rest of us. Like you you're don't get done. any magic. <laughs> you're gonna work in dairy the rest of your fucking lives. Sit down. <laughs> it's a beautiful concept because that is like the last time you believe in kind of magic. A little bit is is when you're a kid and you're like, yeah, I can, I can do anything. I can like, I if I believe in this, it will be real. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah, a it's a beautiful concept. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, that that's also something we, we've touched on this in our uh, talk on Salem's Lot. One of the things that I love about that, too, is that you have this priest who's doubting his faith and he stands up to the vampire and the cross doesn't work because he doesn't believe in it. Yes. He, he doesn't believe it's going to work. And yet, you know, in the same story, you have, a, a, you know, another like 10, 12 year old kid who uses a, a model. He uses a, a crucifix from his like uh, model kit from a, like a, a, an old universal monster movie or something as a cross. And it works because of course it works. He believes it's going to work. You've seen it in movies. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so he just knows it's going to work. You, you're yeah. That, that's definitely an angle where I can buy it. I can buy for sure that, that um, that's the power these kids have and why they are uniquely, able to uh stand up to this thing and you also buy in the the novel there's so much more about the power of the white you know that's with them too the turtle they are agents of of a higher power you know there's something else looking over them very biblical when you think about it this way especially we've already made the comparison that pennywise is kind of a a satan-ish figure I think a lot of it gets muddied a little bit at the in the grown up part of it, though, because so much of what is established is that kids are uniquely built to fight yes. this thing. And so then then it, it becomes a little bit more of a stretch that that uh, the grown ups, especially grown ups that don't have the power of, of their numbers when they ended up when they end up uh, fighting it, uh, they're down too. it feels mm-hmm. a little muddied at the end. And I think that may be part of the disconnect that some people have with the adult part of the story. Honestly, if Pennywise really wanted to fuck with the adults, he would have done nothing magical to them at all when they arrived in Derry. Like, imagine if you get there and like nothing, everything seems totally fine. Now you're like, okay, maybe we were making this all up. Everything seems fine. I'm not seeing weird (laughs) balloons. I'm not like no statues are talking to me. And then, then you stop believing in magic. But Pennywise immediately reinforced to them that magic is real as soon as they arrive. And so, yeah, like, absolutely. My fortune cookie's got blood in it. Cool. I'm back in dairy. <laughs> I believe again. If he really wanted to fuck with them, take away all of that. Right. You <laughs> know, it wouldn't be a book. All of this raises an interesting question I had not considered before. Emily, have you fucked with the Dark Tower series at all? The Dark Tower series, please don't hurt me. It's the only thing of Stephen King's I've not gotten into. Okay. Well, I'll catch you up. Please. There's a character in the final book of the dark tower series and fast forward <laughs> 90 minutes from this point um, 90 minutes. So you don't, yeah uh, it's a long point uh so you don't get spoiled but there's a character in the last dark tower book by the name of danzelo who is re- ultimately revealed to be and eric correct me if i'm wrong here of the same sort of race as pennywise yes mm. it is heavily uh, insinuated yes 
Okay. But his thing is, rather than feeding on fear, he feeds on laughter. Oh, so, he fun. Yeah. Yeah. He like, <laughs> he gets the, he gets like our heroes into his little, his little house and he's being very nice to them. And he's like kind of a hat comic doing jokes. And some of the people in the group are like falling prey to this and like laughing hysterically. And I think there's one person who's like, what the fuck? This isn't funny. And and that's how it ultimately reveals itself. That's sort of my memory of it. If this is true, in the greater, you know, overall Stephen King thing, if Pennywise is to fear what Dandelo is to laughter, if you defeat Pennywise by just not buying his bullshit or reversing it against him and being like, this is a battery acid, fuck you. Wouldn't the ideal person to go up against Dandelo be like an improv comic? Or somebody who is like really good at not breaking during a sketch. Would Bill Hader not be the perfect person, I submit to you, to go against, you know, a guy guy who will keep a straight face no matter what. Like, even if you were laughing on the inside, you can keep a poker face. Well, full circle, him, he was in it. So, I mean, he's already got some, got some experience. That tracks, right? Or am I crazy? I think that makes sense. And then I kind of start thinking about, are there like sadness demons that feed upon sadness? And are there anger demons that feed upon anger? Well, it's funny you mention that because that's kind of what the creature in the outsider is. Oh, that's right. That's it feeds right. on grief. And it yeah. is it is totally like of the, I think it's in the family, whatever the creature mm. in the outsider is of, right. of Pennywise. Yeah, he's a shapeshifter too. Yeah. Yep. He just is more slow. Doing more it. slow and more human based. <laughs> yes. He has a cave. An underground know. cave. Yes. In the, in the, 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 the dots are connecting. <laughs> yeah. Had you not considered um, that before? The outsider creature is also of the same race as Pennywise and. Possibly. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, not I think, you, Emily, uh, you haven't read that far in the Dark Tower, but I'm, I'm asking Eric, <laughs> my co host on the Stephen King podcast, if he has thought of that before. <laughs> Uh, I probably not directly, but it, it makes sense. I, they King names exactly what Pennywise is in the book. He's a glamour. There's a whole section of the book where he goes into what this is and what different cultures have called this, this monster over, over time. So I, I think there's definitely room for there to be distant cousins to Pennywise. And, and I think the, the thing in the outsider is probably a distant cousin. Yeah. Right on. Right on. So we're 50 minutes into this thing. We haven't even talked about the miniseries yet. Let's get to that. <laughs> Tommy Wallace directed. Tommy Wallace, of course, the guy that did Halloween 3, which is possibly my favorite of the Halloween movies. I don't want to hear about it if you disagree. Eric, do you have any uh, Do you have any fun facts you want to share about the production of this? I didn't scan the internet for, uh, for any fun facts, but I did watch the commentary on the Blu-ray, which Tom Lee Wallace is on. Uh, it's like him, and it's like half of the adult cast, including John Ritter. And um, Tommy Lee Wallace, it's one of those great commentaries, and I love it. I wish every movie would do this, is record the commentary 12 years after you make a thing. So he's just going in there going, yep, that end spider was bullshit. I hated it. I didn't want to do it. You know, it's like he's going in there just like doesn't give a shit about throwing people under the bus. Uh, But he's also talking about how he thinks the first night of the miniseries, uh, you know, that first uh, hour and a half or so uh, that ends with Richard uh, Mazur, you know, killing himself. um, He thinks it is like one of the all time best TV movie 
chunks, I guess. I don't know what do you call it, night ones or whatever, seven acts. Uh, and he's, you know, he's not wrong in, in terms of the impact it had on culture. I, I We've talked about this mul- multiple times on the podcast before, but it's really hard to, even with that said, it's really hard to undersell just how important this miniseries was and how big it was and how much mm-hmm. of a, a, a pop culture thing that this was. Mm-hmm. Parents were talking about it. Kids were talking about it. Families watched this thing because it was on TV. It was safe, but it was also pushing the envelope in ways that uh, that stuff hadn't done on TV before. And, you know, and it was creepy and watching it now, you know, it's kind of a, a product of its time. You can, you have to, you know, watch it with a, a caveat on it, but it's still incredibly ambitious what they were doing. So that's a long way of me saying that the commentary on the, on the Blu-ray, if you, you have it, you should watch it. Right on. I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on my fun facts for just a second. Uh, Emily, when, when did you watch this as it aired? Did you watch it? With yeah, your family? I did. I probably watched it with my mom and my mom and I watched like, we would watch like Twin Peaks and stuff together. Um, yeah, so yeah, I probably watched yeah. it with her or with my sister for sure. And how, how did you respond? I mean, I thought it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, Tim Curry, already a Tim Curry fan as a kid from Clue um, mm-hmm. and then Legend. Like, right. so my, it was like, I watched Clue and then I watched Legend and I was like, that's the same guy. And then I watched the It miniseries and I was like, and that is the same guy. The way that he moves his mouth when he says the word float is uh-huh. one of the sexiest slash creepiest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. Uh, oh, and also Rocky Horror. I got to, th- I mean, what, I don't oh, even yeah. know when I saw that, but just the idea, I, I, and I didn't grow up with like a fear of clowns or anything, but I loved the juxtaposition of this like very goofy kind of looking creature who was so evil. That scene where he just like throws his mouth open and his teeth kind of uh, appear. That'll stay with me. I am eternal child. I mean, uh-huh. I, that'll stay with me for the rest of my life. The shower scene um, with Eddie will stay with me forever. And the photo album scene. I thought the photo album scene was done so well. When the parents pick it up and the blood is all over their hands and they don't even notice. Yeah. It was truly, truly terrifying. And also a little bit awful. I remember that too. Yeah. <laughs> a smidge. Just a smidge. It's a, I remember it being corny and I remember not caring because I was so excited to get to see something this scary on TV. It's scary well, it, shitless when yeah, I yeah. when I saw it. I, I have like a kind of a working theory that people who are just a little bit older than me, who are like people who are old enough to go see the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th movies like in theaters in the 80s, which I certainly wasn't. Those people, like for that era, it's sort of like their icons are Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, maybe Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who were of an age in in the the early '90s, where the It miniseries was like their big deal, I think like Pennywise is the most iconic horror villain of that period. And Curry absolutely scared the shit out of me in that. And I remember like going to. Like hiding my eyes watching it. I remember going to school uh, the next day. Uh, apparently, it aired on a Sunday, so this would have been a Monday. And the talk of the playground, I am sure, um, you know, where people were like, "Oh, I fucking watched it," and you know, then there was the second part, and it wasn't as interesting because it was all adults from sitcoms we had seen. Right? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had fucking uh, the judge from Night Court was in there. That's you, had, right. you had the uh, Three's Company guy in there, which was also before my time, but I, I knew. 
I knew about. Yeah. yeah. What's what was Bill's the adult Bill's name? Because that guy was around a lot. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, shit, I can't remember either. Richard remember, something. He had a mole, and so didn't they have to give Jonathan Brandeis a mole? Yeah, too? yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> and also, you know, massive crush on Jonathan Brandeis. Who wouldn't? Uh, who wouldn't have a massive crush? Of wasn't he in Ladybugs? Also, the, the he was yeah. in Ladybugs. Oh. Which uh, Rodney Dangerfield and Jack Hay. I just that's right. That record. Which uh, which I mentioned my nephews earlier. I showed them Ladybugs once, and uh, and I'm watching. Going, oh, I remember. I saw that in the theater. Like I, I remember going to watch that thing, and they were into it. They were laughing. And then there's the scene where Rodney Dangerfield takes Jonathan Brandis into the the dressing room, where there he's trying to get him to like wear a wear like a dress or whatever and it's like we only see it from the outside of like somebody listening in and they see like what looks like little girls you know shoes and a grown man and it's rodney dangerfield and he's just like oh you know just 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 you know get it in there and he's like oh i can't it's too tight and like all this stuff and i'm like oh and i'm sitting there going like i'm sure all this is going over their heads but like holy fucking shit i don't want to have to explain why why this is there's like a two minute long innuendo scene it's, I mean, I used to keep a list of like the blowjob scenes that were in eighties movies because it's like they were constant blowjob scenes. And then you, I was I, as a kid, just being like, I wonder what that's about. I don't know, like what's going on? Why is Dan Aykroyd so like rolling his eyes back in his head? What's happening? I have a, uh, I have yeah. a better question: Is did anyone ever stumble upon that journal? And what were their questions to you? <laughs> I did keep lists. I still do. I, I like make weird little lists of things. And you know, no, we'll Hot be dog, anyway. the movie. <laughs> 37 you know, minutes, 41 seconds in. You don't want to find that job. list. You don't want yeah. to find any of my lists, really. Honey, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Richard Thomas is his name, by the way. That's right. Uh, and uh, he was John Boy in, on the Waltons. That, that's what his claim to fame was. Yeah. Well, that's not what I knew him from. But okay, that's fair. Who knows what I knew him from? <laughs> oh. I just oh I just found out Jonathan Brandeis was dead. I didn't. know Oh, that. did you not? Didn't know, know that? Yeah, no, that was Jonathan Brandeis. Oh, I didn't know that. That's I guess I did and I didn't. That's very sad. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. You beautiful, beautiful man. Yeah, that, that was a, a real a real sad sad one. It was like his career was waning and he got depressed and killed himself. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> anyway, back to the back to the scary monster. <laughs> <laughs> the scariest yeah. monster is depression. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so as a, um, as a child psychologist mm. uh, with a confirmed bachelor's degree, confirmed, um, yes. not a how, confirmed bachelor, but a confirmed yeah. bachelor's degree. Yeah. Let's talk about the sex scene. Oh the, boy. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to hear, first of <laughs> all, I want, uh, first of all, I'd like to know like what your, I don't want to say justification for it because you didn't write it. But you love this book, yes? Oh, yeah. And and yeah. part of it was that I love that it's like a bunch of little boys ran a train on the little girl. That is definitely one way to put it. Yeah. And and so I'm curious what your take on that scene is. And as a child psychologist, particularly, I'm curious how you think it would affect kids to read that scene and, you know, just... Give me everything you got on on that. Okay. Well, I think first of all, Stephen King just a horny horny man and wanted to write a sex scene with children. So I think that's the number one. Really? <laughs> I think he. Yeah, I think he just was like he he's kind of a filthy little guy. It's it's like part of at I least know, it wasn't but... at that point in time. So I think, in my absolute opinion, 
I think he was like trying to figure out ways to get more sex into this book at any point in time. As a reread, as an adult, I constantly was noticing phrases that I remembered from childhood, like sliding into her was like sliding into an exquisite oil. That's cool. been stuck in my head for 30 fucking years or whatever. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. Is, is that from that scene? No, that is from Bill having sex with a grown up Beverly. Um, okay, thank which God. also happens. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Um, ben describing his penis as a hard little branch in his pants. Okay. Um, that's been stuck in my head. Also constantly describing Beverly's young Beverly's nipples getting hard. Oh, just <laughs> constantly. Anytime she gets any kind of uh, scared, angry, whatever, her nipples get hard and it feels pretty good, but also kind of bad. Um, <laughs> these are all just things I read with an adult size of like, Oh, this guy, Wherever Stephen King was in his like addiction journey and his wherever exploring himself journey, he was in a very horny phase, I think, around this time. <laughs> That's my opinion. So I think I kind of get the connection that Beverly is like, my dad said this was bad, but I think it's good and it'll keep us, it'll keep us together. And I think in a very practical sense, everybody was super anxious and then they all got to jizz and they all got uh, relaxed after that. <laughs> like that, that is exactly what happens is that Eddie is too nervous to lead them around. He has sex for the first time. And then he's like, oh, now I remember where we're supposed to go. It's interesting. I think childhood sexuality is a thing we don't like talking about because it's uncomfortable, but absolutely kids, kids are sexual creatures. They're trying to figure sure. things out. It's, for the most part, not a predatory thing. It is an exploration thing. It is perfectly natural. A lot of kids do it. So I think, but it wasn't written, it was written as not kids figuring stuff out. It was written as Beverly seducing them in some way. In my opinion, Beverly kind of being the like, oh, I'm going to be the naughty little sex teacher and you kids are going to come and get inside me. Um, also, do you want to go last on that one? I don't think so. That's <laughs> oh lord. <laughs> anyway, um, so I do think Emily Gordon was... said no one wants to be the caboose. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say completely consensual, one hundred percent. If anything, Beverly's the one kind of urging it on, which I think is cool. Um, mm -hmm. Cool. That's not the right word for that. But I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do think I. I think it is written much more adult then I think I would have liked to read it. But by the way, when I was little, okay, I'll say it. Absolutely. It was, it got, it was a horny thing to read as a kid. And I loved it. I loved reading that as a kid. I remember I'd read it so many times that I would skip over. I would just be like speed reading the pages. Cause I knew it was coming. Right. <laughs> and I, well, I didn't remember what came right before it because I, my brain was just like, get to the sex, get to the sex. Yeah. Well, I yeah, gotta I, tell you, I expected many reactions right now and and takes. I did not expect <laughs> this specific one, and I am impressed <laughs> at your candor, madam, and, and and what you've brought to the show today. I get where you're coming from on that because when I was a kid too, I, I remember taking a a sense of pride that uh that she enjoyed herself the most with Ben, with the fat kid. Hell yeah. And like for whatever fucking reason <laughs> Like I was just, I guess, oh cause God. I was the, relating to that one. I was like, like, hell yeah. The fat kid rocked your world. Yeah. You know, like that, that was my reaction. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about like, oh, this is weird that all these kids are having sex with each other. Like that is my predominant memory of reading that when I was 12 years old. She saw the grackles, man. She saw the grackles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's also a, a, an interesting thematic thing to look at here because you can read the Pennywise 
uh, angle of this. Uh, he's a child predator. There's no question about that. that is literally you know, in his job description. He, he is a predator of children. Um, and you can read that as an allegory for sexual predator as well. And how the trauma that they're dealing with, you know, as grownups, you can read that as, you know, uh, as them dealing with sexual traumas in their youth. And there is something interesting about that scene by them taking control of their sexuality and taking it away from the the monster that, you know, thematically works. And it obviously works with the whole coming of age aspect of it as they enter that sewer as children and they leave as adults. I That's get right. it. it it's still really fucking, you know, it's, it's hard to read as an adult. It's, it's, uh, it, there is something bizarre about reading it as a kid where it doesn't hit you in that way. Now you read it as an adult and you're like, I'm on a list now. I can't read these words. You know? <laughs> right. I do think that's the purpose of the scene. I, I think that was his intention while writing it was, and now here is the bridge to adulthood. Mm-hmm. You know, now they're not kids anymore. I think it's handled as clunkily. And um, awkwardly, as any sex scene Stephen King has ever written, all of which are just, they're a bit much, especially this one. Is, you know, it's notorious. But I, I think that was his intention there. I don't think mm-hmm. it's just because he was he was being horny or, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I can, I can point 20%. you to word a thousand other instances where Stephen King was just like, man, my man is horned up. That's what's going on in this scene. <laughs> But I don't think during the sewer gangbang sequence. We, we're it, not calling was, this a gangbang. We're not going okay, to. I don't believe that the sewer train sequence from it was like Stephen King was like cracking his knuckles and was like, all right, I'm going to write some fucking hot shit right but now. I definitely hear what you're saying, but I do. The way I read it, it just it read as an adult. I, I think he does a really good job of keeping everything in a child's perspective. That just felt very adult. And it's an adult thing to do, but it felt adult in a way that I kind of, um, that was the thing that I, upon the reread, I, did, I liked the least about it, was that it wasn't written with a childlike exploring sexuality angle. It was kind of written as like a grown up, like a 35 year old woman who's like seducing a bunch of boys. That's kind of how it read to me, I'll say. But I completely hear you. And I think you're right that it is, it is an allegory for like adulthood and kind of leaving childish things behind. It's also her kind of doing a fuck you to her dad. The thing that you said made me bad is the thing that I'm going to like use to help these like my friends. I love all that. It's complicated stuff. <laughs> yeah. I read a thing earlier today while I was researching this that Lawrence D. Cohen said and his take on that scene, which apparently was in an earlier draft believe it or not, for the ABC network. Oh, man. Yeah. And and they're like, you know, they they cut it, obviously. But like Tommy Wallace is on record somewhere saying like, yeah, I just didn't think we needed it or something like that. Yeah. I'm like, that's not why you didn't include it, my man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, on the commentary. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, but Lawrence Cohen saying that, you know, his interpretation of that scene is that Bev is is giving them the, a gift of losing mm-hmm. their virginity before they're facing certain death so that they might at least go out as quote unquote men. What do you think of that? <sighs> doesn't it, doesn't it happen after the confrontation? I thought yes, the, it does. they were lost. They, they were lost, lost in the sewers. Right, let me pull up yeah. the exact quote and see what he said. Yeah. So he's, I, I think that he's, uh, he's wrong. Well, also <laughs> it, it very much centers it on like, the men's experience and not her experience whatsoever. Right. She's just there to give away this little gift, uh, this little thing that she's been given. 
I mean, she saw the grackles with Ben. Let's not forget. <laughs> fucking grackles. Well, and it, it's it's told almost exclusively from her point of view, right? It I, is. I, I, yeah. Yeah. So you don't. You, you know. don't want to hear their point of view during that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like MacGruber. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I worked with, I worked with kids who, I, and I've had to work with kids who have kind of like been like trying to like. Uh, come to terms with exploring sexuality at a very young age. And it, it's just a really weird thing to talk about. And I think I'm slightly more comfortable because I've had to do it in like a clinical setting for a while, but it's, it's weird. It's not something we want to, um, it's not something we want to see or, or talk about so much, but I think if any of us think back, it's something that we all kind of have some version of an experience with, you know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everybody okay, okay. played doctor. Or- yeah. I found, yeah. I found the exact quote. Oh, I remember this incorrectly. This is not a quote from Cohen. This is from Annette O'Toole, actually. Oh, interesting. Okay. O'Toole is admitted to disliking the removal of the loser's orgy scene. Quote. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is a serious podcast, Emily. It's a Friday night for me, baby, back in 1994. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. We've all behind an Arby's. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about inside that Arby's after it's closed. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. They've got the beef. Okay, so the quote is, this was their greatest attachment to one another. She thought they were all going to die, and this was a gift she was giving to each one of them. And I thought it was the most beautiful, generous, love-filled gift, and it tied them all together in such an amazing way. Cohen retrospectively admitted that he wished he was permitted to write an ending different from the novels. Hmm. Hmm. That fits a little bit more because they're trapped and lost in the sewers and they're just going to okay. wither away and die. So it's, yeah. I was remembering that, that one it tracks a little bit more. Fighting, fighting Pennywise, but I was, I was wrong about the train quote. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can, yeah. I mean, I definitely can get down with that. And I think it's, it's interesting to think about those characters as they've grown up when people are like, okay, tell me about your first time. Then being like, I don't really remember. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. I was very young. It was smelly. It was dark. Uh, uh, <laughs> there I were think grackles. there was a clown involved, but I don't remember exactly. <laughs> I was 36 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get through this thing without talking about Tim Curry as Pennywise. Oh, oh yeah. Tim Curry, uh, a still living legend. We talked about his sexy lips earlier with the, with the float line. I agree with this. I think he's a very sexy man. Can we talk about the differences between Curry and Bill Skarsgård in the new one? Sure. In oh, terms okay. of presentation and the aesthetics, you know, the costumes and, and the performance itself. Like, where do y'all land on that? I feel like the Skarsgård one is different because he's a much younger actor. He's a much younger person. And so there's there's a weird manic childlike aspect to him that Tim Curry does not do. Tim Curry's Pennywise is much more of a showman. And, you know, much more theatrical and, and in many ways, because of that, he's much more intimidating. Like the line Emily brought up earlier, where he's, uh, uh, holding Stan against the wall and he's about to eat him. And he's like telling the kids, you know, that he's like, I'm a destroyer of worlds and eater of children. Like the, when he's growling that out, you go, fuck. Yeah. This dude's like, he's, he's going to win, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that so that that's like the most broad comparison between the two is that, you know, one definitely inhabits like an older presence, an older, deeper, meaner presence. And the other one's, you know, more, I don't know, Heath Ledger Joker, you know, a little bit more manic yeah. and chaotic and unpredictable. 
It's a good uh, comparison. I really like both versions. I, I, I love both versions. I think there's the monsters who run after you and the monsters who walk after you. And both are scary for different reasons. Uh, obviously, Tim Curry is the one who will walk after you, but will like will catch you. Like, don't worry. <laughs> and and Skarsgård's going to run after you, and he will also catch you. I also like. I can picture Tim Curry's Pennywise waking up and putting on his costume, whereas <laughs> you can feel that Skarsgård lives in that. He doesn't ever look different than that. And I think there's creepiness to both of those. So I love them both. I actually like, obviously some of the special effects in the old one are, are kind of not up to par. The like dancing jig scene. Um, yeah. I don't even know which, which of the movies that's in is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen in my life. And I love it endlessly. And I've seen drag queens do that look. And that's something <laughs> you need to look up immediately. Please look up drag queens doing Pennywise, the new Pennywise. Oh my God. It's yeah stunning but uh they're both great i i just i love tim curry uh, like because i've loved him my entire life right but i don't know i love them both i really do have you, uh, quick sidebar emily have you ever seen the worst witch are you how dare you slander me okay okay bro, we've all just seen the sure. worst witch <laughs> there, there's a surprising number of people didn't and i think that you had to be of a certain age when it ran like Constantly on HBO or whatever. Constantly on HBO. And, you know, try showing that movie to someone as an adult. It's difficult. Skip straight to to his saying they haven't seen the worst witch. So many people. Uh, Of course, they're all young young people on social media. But this this has like the feel of a more and more people are saying that they haven't seen the worst. Yeah. Lots yeah, this of I'm angry. putting my Donald Trump voice on. Yeah, I'm hearing, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. people that haven't seen the worst witch. <laughs> we love that witch, don't we, folks? Some folks, <laughs> call her, some folks call her the worst. I call her the best. <laughs> Definitely a witch, though. <laughs> yeah. She's got power. Yes, no, that, I, I can't. There, there hasn't been a, a Halloween that I've celebrated ever since that, that came out where that hasn't been played. Yeah, his song, his anything song. can happen on Halloween. Anything. <laughs> did you? Yep. Did, did you Your all dentist know? could turn into a queen. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> did you all know that Tim Curry played an evil clown in another movie? Ooh, what movie? Home Alone 2. It's called Ginger Clown. What? Which in and of itself should be a warning. Oh. Uh, this is 2012. He does the voice of, oh. you guessed it, the Ginger Clown. I recommend that all of our listeners go check out the trailer for that movie. And in fact, maybe watch it if you feel like spending $4 to see it on YouTube. Uh, I cannot verify its quality. It looks like it's got about a one and a half out of 10 rating here on IMDb. <laughs> but it's about like some teenagers that essentially break into an amusement park and they are terrorized by a number of what appear to be animatronics. So he was the voice of the main clown. Interesting. Okay, I'll take yeah. that. It's not that interesting, but I brought it up anyway. It might, <laughs> it, but it might be time for some it production fun facts. Did you know, for instance, that Jim Carrey was in the running to play old Eddie Kasprak? Oh, huh. yes. This would have been around the Earth Girls are Easy time, I guess. They're mm-hmm. about, I guess, yeah, because they filmed this in '89. Yeah, I can uh, see that. Alice Cooper was up for for Pennywise, which <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine? Like, I can. Um, that would have been interesting. I don't know. Like, I don't think I've seen enough of. I mean, of course, I've seen Wayne's World. I've seen a, a cumulative forty-five seconds of Alice Cooper's like acting range, and it was good in Wayne's World. I feel like he would be 
you know, this kind of gets back to what I was asking about earlier about the aesthetics of these two versions of Pennywise, mm-hmm. right? Because my problem with the Muschietti version is that that version of Pennywise, which I love to be very clear, also does not look as welcoming as the Curry Pennywise. Pennywise should look like a thing kids are attracted to. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Curry's Pennywise is more of like in the Bozo the Clown sort of uh, mold, right? If I were a child of, say, the 50s and I encountered a Bozo the Clown looking clown, I would be l- way less terrified than these days or in the 90s, if we're updating to the, the Muschietti version, seeing like a Victorian doll clown. I'd be like, absolutely fucking not. I'm not going anywhere near that, you know, because it's (laughs) troubling to look at. Alice Cooper is like, I'm picturing him in in Pennywise costume and he's like, his stubble is coming through the makeup. Yeah. He's smoking a cigarette. He's like if a cab driver were were Pennywise, basically. That's what I'm picturing. Yeah, that's right. And that would be scary. I would not go near that. That's right. No age at no age. It would not be as attractive though. And Wallace, uh, you know, in, in talking about Tim Curry's design, like wanted something that was more welcoming to uh, to children. Uh, they spent $200,000. It's almost a quarter of a million dollars, folks, on that uh, spider puppet that uh, brings the Ooh, miniseries okay. to close. It was radio-controlled, 500 pounds, 250 feet around, but it also required over a dozen puppeteers to make various parts of it work. It sounds like a complete clusterfuck of a creature effect. But Eric, here's one fun thing I learned is that uh, it's in Houston right now. We could (gasps) go down there and fucking break that mother out of jail, ride it to freedom. Where is it in Houston? When? Why? Um, Well, the guy that worked on... Let me pull it up. I'm finding it. I'm finding it. Sorry, we're going to have to edit all this dead space out, but it's worth it answering. No, I like question. it. I was like, I took, I need That's a minute. That's the tension. Nice. <laughs> Fuck, it might not be on this Wikipedia page. It might have been something else I was looking at. It was in Twitter. Somebody was telling Yeah, Robert Saucedo was hitting me up about it. It's on, it's in like a museum, basically. Oh, of, it belongs in a museum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like the effects guy that worked on it has a museum you can go visit that has like a bunch of like Tim Curry, Pennywise outfits and shit. Is it a special effects museum or is it like a puppetry museum or? It feels like it's from what I saw, it looks like it was just like his house or something or an offshoot of his house. Yeah. This guy is like a a lifetime, you know, effects dude, I gather and has gathered a bunch of props at his house or something. Anyway, what I'm suggesting is we go down there and reclaim it somehow. Yeah. Um, I, would which would, I mean, some people would call it stealing, but um, I think he's had it for long enough and the King cast needs to own that. Put it on top of my house. Here's another thing. Tim Curry is only in this miniseries for 20 minutes. What do you think of that? I love when I find out stuff like that. I love that. That's Can how you imagine? much he looms large is like yeah. he's in every frame of that in my head and he's only in 20 minutes. I love it. Here's the thing. It's just kind of thinking about it. Like Tim Curry brings so much gravitas and theatricality to it and that's kind of what sets his pennywise apart but one thing that i really love that skarsgård does is he really plays up the fact that pennywise the clown is a mask right the the floating eye thing like mm-hmm. when he just like zones out that's one like tiny detail in the Muschietti films that i fucking love because that's that's it pennywise isn't the clown it is 
a, a force, you know, that's using the clown as a, as a visual. Right. So I do love seeing that aspect of it. And, and uh, that's a, a great detail that shows how much they understand the character. Can I mm-hmm. ask a question of you guys that I, I was kind of, I've wondered before and I wondered while you're reading it, who is sure, Robert sure. Gray? Well, I mean, I know who he is as he's like, you know, a, a name that Pennywise uses sometimes, but who is he? Go ahead, Eric. I'm looking something up. Oh, yeah. Are you looking up the answer? Because uh, I don't really <laughs> no, know. I'm, I'm, uh, oh, actually, I got the answer. It's Bart Mixon. That's his name. That's the guy what? that owns the museum. Oh, oh I, was like, I thought she said that was Pennywise's name. I'm Bob like, what? Gray That's Robert Mixon. <laughs> Bart Mixon is, is Pennywise's cousin. He's a window washer. Yeah. Uh, Bob Gray is, is, uh, I think it's just another alias for, for Pennywise. Yeah. I mean, the, the Mrs. Kirsch like yep. mentioned that her father's, you know, her father's her father. name is <laughs> my father, <laughs> that their name is, uh, was Robert Gray. And, and I think that isn't that like the return address or something on like something that Pennywise it mails is. to and somebody. It's such a weird thing that's put in like once or twice. And I thought, Oh, that maybe there's something to that, that I've missed in like previous reads. And I, right. I didn't see anything else about it, except it mentioned that two times, but it's a very, it's a very specific and interesting. Like he's got like a Clark Kent. Like, <laughs> right. Well, that's his human name. He can't, he can't constantly be, be yeah. Pennywise the clown on, on everything. Right. So Absolutely. Pennywise is a, a journalist working with Lois Lane. And exactly. I've always, you know, I agree with Eric on that, but also I think it's an alias he adopted at some point, and he had a human presence at some point in, in Derry. And interesting, okay. And it's implied, especially in the um, the second Muschietti, it that Bob Gray was like a like a vaudeville carnival guy, you know, that, right. that came through there. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that's what Bob Gray is. I think there was a period where Pennywise was sort of living amongst them. As as this guy, but also probably doing some shady shit on the side. Oh, definitely. Definitely doing some shady shit. I just I kind of like the idea of like it, like when he's on Twitter, he's Bob Gray. Like he's got like a he's got like a little alias within an it's alias. A, it's an burner alias. account on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are a couple things I want to hit up before we wrap up. One, uh, I want to just mention how I've always been a big fan of John Ritter. But after listening to the commentary, like I'm a John Ritter stan for, forever, he he would be had would have been the perfect guest for the totally, podcast. Totally, like apparently he was like on the commentary he was talking about like oh I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I buy every book the day it comes out and I read it you know from, you know as fast as I can. And he talks about going to like a baseball game with uh, Stephen King, Stephen and Owen, you know, and how it was in Canada and and they sang the Canadian national anthem and then Stephen King behind him goes now sing the real one. You know, or whatever. <laughs> like he has all these great like dad <laughs> joke kind of things. But like the more he he talks on the commentary, the more I'm like, this is like my dude, right? Like he was talking about how he was trying to f- uh, force the filmmakers into bringing the turtle into the story, Aww. all the cosmic shit, and they're just like, no man, that's too weird. And he he like fought for it, and he of course also was the first one to make fun of the spider and his weird leather vest that he has to wear. You know, like <laughs> all, all this. Uh, all this uh, great stuff and like listening to the commentary one it made me even you know sadder any reminder that you know that he died too young i hate to break it to you emily in case you didn't know that one too um, <laughs> that one i did know <laughs> okay good like this is gonna be a real fucking bad real news bummer. breaker of a, of a podcast for you sorry i heard um, Heath ledger's gonna play pennywise next guys. oh, <laughs> oh my. no uh. um so yeah no i i love john ritter i think uh he is actually really great as Ben. And, you know, that's a, 
a failing of the Muschietti, you know, sequel that we can talk about whenever we focus, focus on the Muschietti films. But, uh, you know, the adult Ben there is just kind of vanilla and the adult Ben here, I think is, you know, next to Harry Anderson, maybe one of the most interesting mm-hmm. of the, uh, the adult cast in, in the miniseries. Speaking of interesting things involving John Ritter in this context, I also want to add that I dug up for not so fun facts about the uh, oh no uh, production. Uh, it, here's the thing. Uh, one of my least favorite things in the world is if you go to IMDb and you look under the trivia section, what you will find is a wall of pretty good trivia facts. And then as the years go on, people keep adding to it and they have nothing to fucking add because they've seen all everyone else's trivia entries. So the trivia, quote unquote, itself gets worse and worse as it goes along. <laughs> okay, so one of them is one of two 1990 productions in which John Ritter portrayed a character named Ben, the other being Problem Child, 1990. Ooh, yeah. Your minds are blown right now. <laughs> uh, here's another one. Tim Curry is not in the last 15 minutes of this miniseries. Thank you. Ooh. <laughs> One more. In the novel, Officer Nell, played by Terrence Kelly, makes the kids take the dam apart. He's not happy about the dam in this miniseries, but it's unknown whether he makes them do the same. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 35 out of 66 people found this helpful. They found that helpful. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, that's the big question when you finish watching that miniseries is, is the dam still there? Is it okay? What's happening with the dam? So I think that I I would love to kind of end on talking about the ending of the book and something that hasn't been adapted in any of the adaptations, the miniseries or the movies, is the reveal that Pennywise is female and has laid eggs. And this is one of the reasons why it's crucial for the Losers Club to have come back for the confrontation because they're if they don't destroy Pennywise now and destroy her eggs, then there are going to be like a thousand Pennywises coming up. Pennywise yeah. is all over the goddamn place. Every small town in America. <laughs> yeah. A Pennywise for every world Pennywises. <laughs> it, it only took her like a million years or whatever the fuck to, to lay these eggs. And uh, and d- does she reproduce asexually or is there a, a I was so curious Pennywise about somewhere? that. Yeah. How, yeah. how, who is giving it to her right? Was it Beverly? I don't think, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think anyone's <laughs> fucking Pennywise. <laughs> Pennywise slipped in on the train. <laughs> Beverly's like, yeah, yeah. I, I thought there were six of you, but I guess there were seven. Other <laughs> I don't know, it's dark. It was super dark. There's like a singles bar in Derry for all the oh, poor people in Derry. And Pennywise is like the prized piece of ass <laughs> in that bar. So you go home with Pennywise. Oh, she'll fucking rock your world. <laughs> that shit is wild. Let me tell you, boy. I really loved. I love Ben smashing all the eggs. I think that's a lovely and like like it being such a horrifying, gross thing to do the first time, and then looking up and seeing like there's like a hundred of them. I love that moment all the time. I also feel like maybe it's been it was cut because like it was a little it got really fashionable to have monsters who were like female, I guess. I don't know. Like I, I don't maybe I don't know. I don't know why any of them cut it because to me it feels like a great it feels like a great way to end things is to like the that idea that you have to like stamp all this out and this is why they came back. And that somehow it's removing it's removing the cancer, right? Removing and, it, yeah. Yeah. The only reason you might not want to do that is like it, it seems to be setting up a sequel. Oh, you didn't get one of the eggs. Now there's another Pennywise. That's true. That's you know? true. 
but and it, it kind of complicates that. I do like the cleanliness of there's one Pennywise. They fucked it up, but good. It's dead. Let's move on. Yeah, that is true. Because then then afterwards, everybody's like reading the news and being like, there's a bunch of murders today in this town. Is that is that Pennywise? Oh, nope. Just regular murder. OK. All right. I guess we're fine. We'll keep looking. <laughs> just regular ass evil and not like Pennywise evil. OK, that's fair. <laughs> Has it been 27 years yet? Oh, shit. OK. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna need to see some id sir <laughs> i don't know this is bob gray let him go oh, no not bob gray <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i i imagine i am just dumbfounded that it's taken this long into the show's run before we actually got to tackle it in any shape way or form i feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this property so uh, this is probably the first of many it episodes to come but emily you, you were you were fantastic you set a high bar for anybody who tackles this property oh. yeah anyone coming next you better watch out you better you better have at least two master's degrees <laughs> yeah. and make sure that's board. on your wikipedia yeah <laughs> This is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to plug whatever they have coming up next. Oh, I understand I like you're plug, working on a number of things, but what can you yeah, talk about now? I would love to plug uh, vaccinations, um, wearing a mask, washing your hands, being kind uh, to people, tipping well if you are able, and staying safe. That is what I would like to plug. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, are you sure you don't want to text The Rock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He would love it. He would love it. Sure. Listen. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. My one of my best friends. I don't know. Now. Okay. Look, man. You're gonna come back on this show at some point. I just know it. The pressure is only gonna get worse. We we'll discuss it down the line. We'll, we'll we can discuss this. Down I will. Line. We'll I will this. absolutely talk you into texting the Rock on our show at some point. Something not as something super ridiculous. Yeah. How do you feel about silent elf shoes that we will put the noise in later, sir? <laughs> and they will sound like Big Ben chimes. Yes. You oh, one hundred percent. They're gonna have to. Yeah. He's gonna love it. He's gonna love it. <laughs> thank you so much, Emily. This was a blast. Yeah. yeah thank you guys you. for having me. This was super fun. Many thanks to Emily V. Gordon. I didn't actually ask her, by the way, is V. Gordon like there for a reason? Like, is she does she want to just be Emily Gordon? But there's another Emily Gordon. Like, it stands for like, very much not going to call the rock while on the air <laughs> is what it stands for. That's that's true. So, so it's a good thing I didn't ask. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm telling you, like, I'll, I'll get there eventually. I'm going to get a response from the rock on the air on this show. That is yet another KingCast exclusive. And I can guarantee it right now. I don't have a bloodline because I do not like children, nor do I want to have them. But I will bet my unborn child's life on this. Hey, I'm in for it. I just want The Rock uh, to be annoyed by us at some point, directly or indirectly. Yeah, he roasted me on Twitter a while back, you know, so I owe him one. Oh, nice. That's indeed. I, I have a Rock Twitter anecdote. He he retweeted something that I, I tweeted once, and it was just about how he and Kurt Russell should spin off the Fast and the Furious movies. And he just was, did like his, his like hang loose emoji going, you know, good thoughts, my man, you know, like I'm, we're trying to do our individual Hobbs movie, but things have been held it up or whatever. And then, you know, then he got his, his Hobbs spinoff. So that's my, the Rock story. Oh. I tweeted out once I, I had pictures of him from several movies where he was wearing a, a khaki shirt mm -hmm. and tagged him in the tweet and said that The Rock is using up our natural khaki shirt resources 
and that we may need to have a, a, a talk with him for the next movie. And he responded saying like, uh, on the next one, um, we're going to have shirts made up in special Wampler sizes, so don't worry about it. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was good times. Um, but we're, we're coming for you, The Rock. Don't worry about that. What do you think The Rock would pick? What do you think his favorite Stephen King book I'm is? I'm willing to bet that The Rock has not read a Stephen King book. I just don't picture him as a... I lo- like, I, I'll, say, I'll, I'll say I love The Rock, but I do not picture him as a reader at all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's eating you chicken he's just a big, dumb and rice. That- and, no, I don't think he's dumb. I think he's just like super fucking ambitious and like motivated to be working. And I don't anytime think, that like, he could be spending reading, he would then be losing muscle tone. Is what yeah, basically, saying. that's what. Yeah, that's what. That's what I'm saying. I don't think he's a. I don't think he's a reader. I think he'd be a no. I don't. I just don't think he'd be interested <laughs> at any level. He wouldn't come no. on. We might be. Yeah. Let, let's uh, let's work our magic and get Schwarzenegger on the show to talk about the Running Man, and then maybe the Rock will want to follow in his footsteps. Schwartz, I think we could get, and you know, we're working on it. But the Rock, I just, I don't see it. I don't see it. Period. So we're in a good position to be asking him about his Jingle Bell boots, his little elf <laughs> boots. So. This week is now jam-packed because uh, we're insane and we decided that since we missed our main feed episode and our Patreon bonus episode last week due to being uh, frozen in our homes without power or internet, we decided, you know, fuck it. We'll give everybody uh, five days of our voices. That's like going to be well over five hours of us droning on about Stephen King shit. You're welcome, America. Oh, yes. So let's run down everything that's coming for you guys this week. Uh, You've listened to Emily V. Gordon talking about it. That's a super solid episode. Big time happy with that one. Tomorrow, what we are doing is we are dropping in one of my favorite things we've ever recorded for this show. And that is uh, we actually had a a real deal lawyer uh, named Lindsay Travis come on the show to do a defense of Andy Dufresne. And she does such a good job that we are pretty certain that she would have kept Andy out of the Shawshank prison. Quite quite possibly, yes. She like has this whole thing written up about, you know, what her argument would have been, and she recites it as if she was at Andy's trial defending him. She killed it. It's awesome. The episode rules. Yes. And on Wednesday, we are bringing in the great Patrick Monahan, who, if you're on Twitter, you know as at Patty Mo, to discuss the Pet Cemetery remake. Patrick is uh, one of the funniest people on Twitter. It's it's a strong episode. We're really excited to have Patrick on, and uh, we'll be dropping that on Wednesday. That's our normal main feed episode. And on Thursday, we are dropping a bonus episode, and it is an in-depth interview with Bev Vincent. Yep. Now, Bev, for any Dark Tower nerds, will know who this is instantly. This is you know, next to Robin Firth and Stephen King, probably the most knowledgeable about the Dark Tower. Uh, he's He wrote a book called The Road to the Dark Tower around the time that the last novel came out. Nobody knows the mind of Stephen King better than, than uh, this guy, at least nobody that we could get on the show. <laughs> Tab right. of the King, maybe. Right. It's a, it's a great interview. Uh, Bev is a sweetheart. And uh, it's just fun to pick the brain of somebody that has worked with Stephen King directly on so many occasions. And he's a really good sport with all of my stupid questions. Now, what's happening on Friday? We're getting a commentary, are we not? Oh, yes. We are pairing this week's Patreon bonus episode. This is complicated because there's so many goddamn things happening right now. But originally, the plan was this week would be Pet Cemetery Week. So you'd have 
Patrick doing the Pet Cemetery remake in the main feed. And then on Friday, we're doing a commentary for Pet Cemetery 2. And for this, we brought in a good friend of ours uh, named Melissa Kay. She's a video game designer, a film writer, and all around excellent presence. And uh, we revisit Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery 2 for the first time in many years. Melissa has some great insights into the movie, and um, it's a good one. And it gave me an all new appreciation for that movie. I'll say that. Right. Lots of talk of uh, Edward Furlong's lack of uh, droopy hair over his eye. Lots of talk of Clancy Brown being a badass. Yeah. I will say once again, we got to get Clancy Brown on the show. I've said this like four times. We especially need to get him now. If you will it, dude, it is no dream. Indeed. All right. So that's what we got coming for you this week. You're going to get so sick and tired of us by the time this week's over. We'll see you literally every day this week. See you then. House. <laughs> the Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>